You're listening to the Empowered Divorce Podcast, where women support women who have experienced betrayal trauma and abuse and are now facing divorce. Here, you'll learn tools and concepts to help guide your journey from a place of empowerment by trusting yourself and becoming the chooser in your life. I'm your host, Amy Woolsey. Thanks for joining. Hello, hello, my amazing listeners. How are you doing today? Have you asked yourself that question? (laughs) When I ask myself, most of the time I'm like, well, you're breathing, so that's good, right? All right. I have been so excited to air this episode with Ray. We recorded a while ago, and it's a good one. I wanted to be a little bit more strategic about when I air this. The conversation is really totally organic, like all of my other interviews. I don't have an outline, so I love where we take this. We even get into dating after divorce and how betrayal and abuse really impacts that journey as well, which is perfect because I also want to let you know that this is why the Dating From Within workshop is so valuable. Learning more about you and what your brain has been used to in terms of those destructive behaviors and communication. We want to learn what healthy looks like so that we don't repeat the cycle in those future relationships, right? That's why a lot of us are swearing men off or scared to death to do this again. In this workshop, you will also get a Q&A, live Q&A with my husband, Scott, at the end of the workshop, if you so choose. It's not a requirement. That's why I keep it at the end, just in case that's not something you're ready for. But it has been really valuable in the past workshops. But this is all about you and learning how to date yourself. You have to learn to see into yourself, like yourself, and love yourself first. So this is October 12th through 14th, 7 p.m. Mountain Time. They are all recorded. So if you can't make all three nights, those will still be available to you with the workbook. It is fun. We have fun. Okay. So today's episode, I have joining with me Ray Galen Emerson. Ray is a colleague and mentor of mine. She works full-time as a trauma-informed coach and owner-creator of Healing Talks Back. She is a consultant, supervisor, and specializes in problematic sexual behavior, complicated grief, and is who I refer a lot of my male partner clients who are displaying abusive behavior and communication in their relationships. She works so well with the male partner, and I have yet to be willing to do that. So I love her brain on those. I learned so much from her, and I wanted to invite her to talk with me about some of the ways that those abusive behaviors and communication carry over post-divorce. So a lot of this piggybacks after last week's episode. Our conversation, again, is just organic. And so we touch on a few other concepts. I really think you're going to find this episode helpful and validating. So here's my conversation with Ray. I've invited Galen to join me today to talk about abuse and specifically to speak to you women who have been through betrayal and experienced destructive relationships to talk about what healing from abuse after divorce, and that can be really tricky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for me, it wasn't until I got out of that relationship and stepped away and had the space to really start seeing that it was abusive. In fact, one quick like example, honestly, is pretty powerful for me. I remember being in the hospital. My husband at the time was there with a broken hand because he punched a solid oak wood door, barely missing my head. And I was in the hospital 
making excuses and coming up with a great story to tell everybody. And I never once considered myself an abused woman. Mm -hmm. And so to say tricky is like an understatement, but it wasn't until I got out that I could look at all of these different isolated situations and see, holy crap, that was abuse. That was destructive. That was unhealthy. And so I think this is a really important thing to do when you're stepping into having an empowered divorce is be able to take a look at that relationship and identify those behaviors. And so your expertise in this area is going to be really valuable. And so thank you again for joining the conversation today. I am so happy to be here because I am really passionate about so many of the same things that you are. So this jives very much with the things that I love to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's just dive right into it. And I would love to even just know where your brain goes when we get out of these relationships. Okay, we're divorced now. What do you find often happens with women after they get out? It was abusive. Now they're single. How do they heal? And why is it difficult sometimes to feel like you're healing and moving forward? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's a really complicated answer. And it's really different for every individual situation. But if I had to distill it down to two words, it's this complicated grief. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Complicated grief is what we talk about when there is a natural, normal, everything goes as expected, a mourning process when we've lost something or someone or a situation, something that mattered to us when there's been a bereavement in our lives. And that loss is complicated by traumatic circumstances and abuse always creates trauma. Trauma doesn't always indicate that there's been abuse, but abuse always involves trauma. So when we are victims of abuse and survivors of abuse, and we find ourselves trying to go through this part of the mourning process that is recognizing the fullness of everything that we've lost, it often doesn't hit us until sometime after the dust settles. Because while the dust is all happening and everything is all intense and it would be that natural, normal place for us to feel all the feelings, we were too busy staying in survival mode. (laughs) That's how we got out. And that's how we got strong enough to be able to tolerate the feelings of grief when they flood in. So that delay that's involved with that complication of that grief process is one of the reasons why it's so difficult because there's like this mismatch between the real-time scenarios in which we're experiencing what happened and the emotional timeline under which we're coming to terms with what it all means. And because there's that mismatch and kind of that mess with the time-space situation, it can get really, really difficult to wrap our minds around when we're already still barely getting our lives back together after being in an extended survival mode. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like it's, and I I guess just can speak for myself, I feel like I wasn't in reality because <laughs> I was in survival mode. And once you get yourself out and get a little bit more regulated emotionally, more of that central nervous system starts to come back online, you do start to see things more as they really are. And then that's when the hindsight, that's when the perspective broadens and widens and you can see things a little bit differently. I got the best analogy for that the other day. Someone said to me, you can't read the label when you're inside the jelly jar. Isn't that great? Like, I'm like, oh my gosh, that is the most brilliant things I've ever heard. 
you can't read what's printed on the outside of the label when you're stuck inside the jelly jar. So it is that sense of we have a different and usually more expansive, broadened, grounded point of view when we're looking at it from some distance and from some time. Yeah, totally stealing that. I love it. Right? I love it. That's brilliant. So God bless who did. (laughs) I know, right? Okay, so how, let's say, who said that? How then, and then let's just slow this down just a little bit. So you get out of this relationship, you start to get regulated, you start to learn to get information. A lot of women start navigating towards other women who've been through it, sharing stories. This is why support groups are so valuable. You start to see your experience wasn't as isolated as you might've thought. You're not as alone as you think. And it starts when you hear other women share their story and it resonates, it's similar pieces, that aha moment, those, oh, hearing it come out of someone else's mouth can shed light to your experience. Now, what do I do with this? I'm divorced. What do I do with this? Yeah, that is a really good question. I think one of the first challenges that we have to grapple with in that situation especially if we haven't ever really identified or related to that abuse label or categorization is figure out how do we feel about abused women? Most of us have some pretty inaccurate and pretty complicated stereotypes about what we think about abused women. I know that was true for me. Abused women equal this. And for me, that thing I had in my head did not match my world. So there was some contextualization and some rationalization and some kind of just honest gut level conversations I got to have with myself, my coach, my therapist, and my bestie. I pretty much had narrowed down to my very innermost circle because I didn't really, (laughs) the perspectives of everybody else and her sister were one thing, but I needed to keep my, my sphere of input narrow for a while. And as I began to do that, they let me say all the things and feel all the things and talk my way through because I'm a verbal processor, surprise, surprise, all the things. And that was really, really helpful. Once I started breaking down kind of my own attitudes about the idea of being an abuse victim or an abuse abuse survivor, then it was like, okay, what am I going to do with that? What am I going to do about that? How does that change how I'm going to show up in the world and in my life? And again, those are things that are difficult to do when you're leaving a relationship and starting over and not feeling at the top of your game, right? Like you can usually look back and say, hey, there was a time in my life I might have handled this really well. That time is not now. So kind of having those safe people to talk through not only what identifying experiences are, like can we put them in the categories like trauma and abuse, but also being able to say, okay, if that is true, what does that mean for me? And be able to sit with the discomfort and the distress and the dissonance that comes with not always having an immediate answer. Yeah, for sure. I love that. And what I'm hearing a lot of is just that taking, when you do start to become aware, is taking that time in awareness and sitting there Mm -hmm. so that you can not approve of, but accept that experience that you had. And with that comes this complicated grief or the part of the self that didn't know at the time. It comes with, I like how you were saying, okay, what am I going to do about that? And I think even before that, it might be what, like you said, what does this mean about me? 
and sit with that. It's hard to do. I want to, I want to hold space for that. That's really hard to do. Why do you think, I kind of have two questions. Like, why is that hard and why is that so important? Mm-hmm. I think when we start talking about big words like abuse and trauma, stuff gets real. Stuff gets real fast. It changes say, how we... I, I say, you're, you're saying that very politely and professionally. Shit uh-huh. real. Shit <laughs> real. Shit hits the fan. Thank you for the permission to say that. Yes, that is how it says. Uh, but you know, it, it, it is, it's, it's, so I'm going to, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this. It is about how we process our feelings about ourselves, which is something over which we have quite a lot of control. I can talk more about that if you want me to, but then there's this other category of then what does it say about him? Now, if we now hate him, that's one thing. If we are neutral toward him, it's another thing. We still love him, which is a really common scenario. What do we do with that? The person we love, the person who may be the parent of our child, the person, you know, with whom we shared this life and all of the memories for X amount of time abused me and is an abusive person. Why are we to put that? (laughs) And that can be like a whole extra layer that is often shrouded with every bit as much shame as the judgments that we have toward ourselves. Also, when we hear words like abuse, we always feel like we need to take some kind of an action, which is understandable because it's injustice. And injustice is like our human motivation to take action against it. And oftentimes there isn't an easy or obvious or immediate action to take. Especially when you're divorced uh-huh. there. And that is really like this space right here. Like mm-hmm. I have a lot of feeling in my body, even just sitting in that reality. And, and I totally get it. Like that is so hard when you want to do something or you even want some sort of vindication, validation, accountability, acknowledgement from that person thinking like, cause you know, what would feel nice. <laughs> And you, you don't often, if ever, will get that. Yeah. So how in the hell do we move forward mm. from that? Yeah. So you said something really awesome a moment ago when you first posited the question. You said when we slow down and start to realize, and then you continued on, that slow down piece is enormous. Now, let me say, most of us feel a great sense of lost time. Right. So sometimes we don't want to wait. (laughs) Like, it's like, I am so ready to start my big, beautiful new life. And so I don't want to slow down. Right. And slowing down is where we learn everything we're going to need to live that new, big, beautiful life. Oh my Um, gosh. I just want, I just want women to like sit with that for a second. Oh my gosh. So true. And by the way, I say that with zero judgment on anyone who is in that space and moves forward full throttle, but that is the complicating factor. And that then is you're going to have to learn the lessons at full speed also. And that's a little bit tricky. One of my my favorite teachers on grief talks about if you want to heal faster, slow down. (laughs) And I remember at first I was like, whoa, 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 rewind. You're going to have to say that again because that does not make logical sense to me. But he's like, if you want to heal, you need to take 
the pace that's going to allow you to learn the lessons that make healing possible. If we're so focused on moving forward quickly, we're going to miss the things that make healing possible. Then we're going to end up with a big, beautiful life and then wonder how are we going to sustain it? Exactly. Exactly. No, every, anyone who's listened to me for a while knows that is something that is such a, has always been such a struggle for me is to slow down and stop. It's like a bad word, another four letter word for me to stop. But as I've practiced that more and more in my life, I, there's no words, honestly. I mean, healing growth doesn't even seem to do justice. What that has given me and offered me. So I, yes. So slowing down when you realize well, okay, there was some, there was some abuse here. There were some destructive behaviors here. And then what would you, whether it's your own experience, which I would love if you do feel comfortable sharing some of your own pieces to this, how you manage this in your own story. But let me validate too. I wrote myself a little note because I wanted to highlight what you said there about safe people, how you narrowed it down to like four people. Mm -hmm. So powerful. And so hard. Why is that hard? I'll tell you my story. You asked, you asked for parts of, parts of my, not my whole story, but, but my experience with that. At the point when my marriage ended, I had been in a support group for 10 freaking years. I was closer to those women in my support group than I was to my own mother, my own sister-in-law, my own best friends, because they were the people that, you know, I spent all of my healing energy with. Those women also happen to be married to my ex-husband's best friends. And suddenly these beautiful women who I still to this day love with all my heart did not feel safe anymore. Not through any fault of their own, but for my legal protection, for my mental health, for so many different reasons. My therapist, my attorney, they both just said, girl, as hard as it is, tight circles, small tight circles wrapping around yourself. So I would go to my support group and I would sit in those meetings and I would cry for the whole 90 minutes. Because as soon as I would walk in the door, my body would go, this is the safe space. And then my mouth would go zip straight shut. Beautifully, those women made it okay for me to do that. They didn't pressure or push me to share beyond what I was able and willing to do. But it was for my protection for a number of different reasons that I had to keep that small. The other thing is everybody's got opinions. So my divorce coaching instructor said to me once, divorce is like pregnancy, right? Like once the world discovers you're pregnant, they all want to tell you stories about when I was pregnant or when this person was pregnant or pregnancy is like this. And your pregnancy is going to be very, very different. So is your divorce. And her point was, it can be very tempting to buy into everybody else's projections and presumptions about what your divorce is going to be. But that usually does you almost no good. So it was really also a self-preservatory means of limiting the input I was taking on to be able to keep myself as clear-headed as possible during a really dizzying time. Yeah. Did I answer your question? I have zero idea. No, you totally did. And I love that so much. And I want to encourage everybody to, there, there are so many more resources. I don't know about you, but when I was going through this, there was, I didn't even know about a support group. There are so many more resources now. And I just want to take a moment to invite all of you listening to know notice what you need you might need a bigger support group and then you might be in a space where you're like okay I need to whittle that down and I need to get that tighter or I need to whittle it down right now and have one whether that's therapist coach like 
know where you're at and what you need and know that it's okay and valid. So that's what I want to highlight there with your story. And thank you for sharing that. And oh my gosh, wow, that's quite an experience you had. Okay, so you are, we're slowing things down. We're getting more educated. We're getting more curious. We're getting the right kind of support at this time that we need. One of the things that I, when I work with a lot of women who are going through divorce, and getting into new relationships, whether that's just we're dating now, even relationships with different friends and family, new friends maybe, but ultimately when they get into a new romantic relationship, the patterns of abuse are repeating. And I hear what's wrong with me that I keep attracting these kinds of men. Mm -hmm. That's probably the most common statement. And I find it interesting the what's wrong with me that prefaces that. Not yep. where the work is, right? But I would love to hear your thoughts about how we can help women not repeat those patterns because they don't want to, and but they don't know how to not. Right. Right. That makes perfect sense. So my brain is suddenly going in a million different directions. That happens sometimes. Yeah, um, right, right. Because there's a million different directions that this can take. Right. And, and okay, so here's where I want to, I want to start with this caveat. Everything I'm about to say next is probably going to feel very intangible because it is. It's not concrete. And as trauma survivors, we really like concrete because ambiguity has traditionally not been our friend. We really like to put things in nice, clear, straight, black and white boxes, which is usually almost always a trauma response. So what I'm about to say is going to sound intangible because it is. That's, that's, the, that's the, the reality that we're living in. Most often, I begin the what's wrong with me that I keep attracting these people conversation by reframing the statement a little bit. I actually even let the what's wrong with me part slide for a moment. And I say, what if instead we said, what is it that's making me vulnerable to this or what made me vulnerable to this? Because let's face it, the same wonderful attributes that John Doe took advantage of, Jimmy Doe may not. It isn't as much about what we are attracting or what we are doing, at least entirely, as it is about who it is we're exposed to, who it is who has close contact or access to us. So recognizing our vulnerabilities feels a little bit or a lot different than finding our cues, like what are we putting out there? What signals are we sending? I hear it all kinds of different ways, right? And it brings us back to, again, what are the ways that we can effectively or most effectively keep ourselves safe? So the first place I go from there is it's very natural to think, is this person safe? Looking out there, away from ourselves, right? Can I trust him? Is he trustworthy? Is this person gonna take advantage of me? Does this person really see me for who I am? Can I believe anything that comes out of his mouth, right? And what I like to do is flip that whole conversation on its head and start asking, am I safe for me? Can I keep myself safe? And the answer at the beginning is almost always, I don't. So one of the reasons we slow it down is to find out, yeah. can we keep ourselves? One of the most amazing parts of dating after divorce for me was learning that, oh my gosh, I actually could hold my own in a relationship or in an interaction with someone 
even with all of my quote unquote trauma and trust issues, I could trust myself. I could not let myself feel pressured into giving an answer about something or making a decision about something or being nice to somebody or whatever the case may be. It's really, really, really huge. So I think the answer often involves shifting our focus from looking on how can we protect ourselves from stuff that's going on out there is how can we really reinforce the parts of ourselves that send us all kinds of important data about what feels right, what feels wrong, what feels desirable, what feels helpful, hopeful, healthy, and really begin working with some of that. Yeah, I love that so much. And I believe 100% in that in that concept, because when you become healthy, what you're talking about, what I'm hearing is this beautiful sense of self, seeing the self, seeing all parts of the self, trusting the self, believing that I've got my own back if this thing should happen. And it's critical to start there because, and this is one of the things that a lot of women don't like to hear, but nothing you do externally, especially, but nothing you do can prevent this from happening again. You can eliminate the high risk factors. I think by what you're saying there is eliminating some of the high risk factors where now we're not maybe perhaps putting ourselves in environments or situations or associations anymore because we see very quickly, but that's because you see yourself different. Mm -hmm. So it is, a, like you said, not very tangible, but hopefully... I talk about this all the time. So hopefully hearing it from you, another voice to this and the way that you so beautifully lay that out helps it to start to click mm -hmm. that you've got to do this work on yourself. I love that. Yeah, I needed to prove a lot of that stuff to me. So like, for example, I was really, really, really slow to give out my phone number. The guy I'm dating now, it took me six damn months before I let him even know where I lived, right? Because that was that was important for me to protect myself. I learned that if a guy wanted to buy my dinner and I said, I want to buy my own dinner and he didn't respect that, which a lot of guys won't, then that tells me something really important. And ultimately, those kinds of things, they may sound silly or simple to non-abuse survivors. But for us as abuse survivors, it's everything. I have never felt so powerful than the moment when I protected my heart and protected myself and protected my new fresh start, even when I knew it meant hurting somebody else in the process. That was never my ideal. My responsibility in life isn't to avoid hurting somebody else. My primary responsibility in life is to take care of what's within my control. And so when it comes to some of those really uncomfortable things like, okay, but someone likes me. How can I, how can I let him down easily? Don't sacrifice your well-being for the sake of somebody else's comfort or desires or any of those things, those are hard. But when we, when we find ourselves walking away from the thing that we know is right to walk away from, that's priceless. It really is. It's you taking up space. It's yeah. uh, And it just, it makes, it makes my feminine happy. Because it really is something that we don't talk about enough and give ourselves and other women permission to do enough of is 
that doesn't work for me. Thank you. But no, thank you. Was that hard for you? Like, how did you get there where you could do that? Because I, I feel like women are going to be listening to you and be like, oh my gosh, I could never, or that feels so impossible to do. I remember just starting off with texting your online and you start texting yeah. whatever. And I don't know, you can tell really quickly the through just text message, you're like, oh no, this is not right. <laughs> going to go well. But then there's this sense of like, oh, but we just started communicating. So maybe I'm being judgmental. We just started talking and it's only been two days. That would be rude of me to just cut it off right now. Like that's what I would always think of. So how did you get to that space of the people pleasing and making sure that they're comfortable? Because that's what I did in my abusive marriage. Two. Thank you, but no, thank you. See you later. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So my first answer is nobody's going to love it. And then my second answer might be a little bit more constructive, but I really did wait a long time. <laughs> I mean, I waited a good a good number of years until I felt I was ready for that challenge. Like, like bring it on. I'm ready to take these training wheels out for a test drive, right? And so that was the first thing. The second thing is I'm a writer by nature. I'm a communicator in general, but writing is far more easy for me than speaking extemporaneously because I can actually be thoughtful about how I say what I say. So some people hate the world of texting and online romantic interactions. For me, it actually really, really worked to my advantage. So for example, one of the one of the things was my mantra was, I don't owe anybody anything, right? And I would tell guys straight up, no, I don't want you to buy my dinner because I don't want to ever be in a position where I feel like you're expecting something because you bought my dinner. That's just not happening, right? So that whole, I don't owe you anything thing was really, really, really important. And it came a lot from really reconnecting with the idea that I was worth protecting. But so like on a really practical level, I would never tell guys after a date if I wanted to see them again until the next day. I knew that in the heat of that you know, either, oh my God, I never want to look at this person again, or, oh my God, I cannot wait to see him again. Moment at the end of a date, I was going to be fumbling for the right words. I was going to be stuttering over my tongue. And I was very likely going to default to that girl who is polite and nice versus self-protective. So I would always tell guys right off the bat, by the way, I have a rule when it comes to dating and that will never commit to a second date until at least the next day, sometimes the day after that. I just like fad my my time space on the other end of it. And and I found that if I as I practiced that, that got more comfortable. Again, very empowering feeling when you can walk away when someone wants something that you are not comfortable giving and you don't give it. So there were a lot of little things like that that I kind of wove in throughout not only my dating life, but my life in general. And one of those is just taking away opportunities to feel pressured to give answers to things that I just didn't know what the answer was. And then I could go to bed, feel whatever I was feeling after the date, wake up the next morning with a head that was really grounded in my real life, which may, for example, have included going to bed and having some awful nightmares. I spent some time after my divorce, I would wake up in the morning crying because that was my way of discharging everything. And then I'd go on and have a very happy, healthy day. And then I would end my day crying too. Like those were my bookends. So I would, that, that's real life. Like, and that is so much more real life than the emotional high after, after a date that went well. And even in that, if I could still feel, you know what, this really felt good to me. Yeah, maybe I will say yes to a second date. Yeah, I love that so much. I love that because, again, you're speaking to the importance of slowing it down. 
rather than feeling the pressure to say, yes, I'll go out with you again or whatever. You're even slowing this experience down. And if you are listening to Kaylin right now and what you're saying feels impossible, feels hard, or you're noticing a lot of emotion come up for yourself, this is a beautiful thing to get more curious about. So if you are putting yourself in that situation of saying on the spot, I don't agree to second dates for the next 24 hours or even 48, and you're going, oh my gosh, like your body's having a response or reaction to that. Take a moment to like write down journals and thoughts out. Get curious about why that feels uncomfortable for you. And that's where you can do some of this work. And get curious around so that we're not repeating the patterns. I love that. It's a very coachy suggestion from you, Amy. I do. I like giving them things to do in the moment. Okay. So we could seriously do a whole episode just on this question. But when you've been in an abusive relationship, destructive behaviors, you come out of it. Now you hear people and you want healthy. But what the heck does healthy even look like? Mm-hmm. How, I think we've answered it a little bit, but how do you know what to even look for when a lot of these women have been married for years, if not decades, in unhealthy? So again, I think it's learning to listen to what feels right for you, being willing to say no, being willing to practice walking away from what doesn't feel right. This is also, I think, when the people who have major your inner circle cut this whole way along can be really valuable because they can offer that perspective on watching what you've been through so that you they they can they can highlight something that you may not see from their vantage point it's like value added input I love the idea of divorced women hanging around with healthy married couples. And I know the discomfort of the whole third wheel thing. I know it a lot. And let me say, this is important. For someone who has lived in unhealthy relationships, watching healthy relationships can be triggering. It can trigger everything from why the hell did not get that? Because I did all the things I thought were the right things to do. And how come my story didn't end that way? Yeah. Or if you've got a relationship that you think is healthy and then you find out something, then there's that sense of why should I even be hopeful that healthy even exists? Okay, so that's that's one thing. But I find when you can put yourself in the presence of healthy energy, healthier romantic energy, healthy partnership energy, healthy couples, it goes a long way. Sometimes I'll say, okay, so maybe you don't know a lot of people like that. That's the sad reality. Some of us find some. Watch for them in TV, movies. Like it'll be easier to find the unhealthy ones. But actually when you see something and it resonates with you, like maybe it's a character in a book or a movie or something like that. And you go, wait a minute, what's the characteristic in that that feels appealing to me? That can give you some clues as to what is drawing you and why it's drawing you. It doesn't have to even be romantic relationships. You can pay attention to what is it that you see in relationships between female friends or what do you value about your relationship with female friends that you can then look for in intimate relationships and romantic partnerships. 
So that's that's a part of it, I think. What do you think? Oh my gosh, I love everything you're saying right there. And it's really jogging my own story and memory of, so when I was single, I had a cleaning company and I cleaned houses, apartments and buildings. And I had several clients where their husband was home during the day, whether they worked at home or whatnot, doctors, and they were there while I was cleaning. And I'd observe and watch as they were around my space with each other. And I have so, I'm going to try not to like, okay, no emotion. I got to shove it down for a minute because I want to be able to say this. I remember watching these couples and the feeling that I had as I observed the interactions and the distinct difference from my experience in my body, in my marriage, to the experience I was having in my body watching this couple talk to each other, interact with each other, spend time with each other, talk about normal everyday life things in a healthy way. I remember one time they were having a discussion and they had different viewpoints and my body started to have a response. I started to get really uncomfortable because when you have different opinion of your abuser, there's a consequence to that, right? So I started to have a trauma response to that. And I was like backing my way up out of the room. But as I could hear them continue the conversation and even have a little giggle and a little playfulness in their discussion of differences, I went up to clean the bathroom and sobbed. Mm -hmm. Because that was my aha of, oh, you mean it can be like that? Mm -hmm. I mean... It doesn't have to end badly or with the hole punched in the wall. What? So I think that's a great idea. I'm very grateful that I had those examples in my life um, while I was single to observe that. And that's a really beautiful way to, to learn what healthy is. But I think the key there that I want to point out is what I noticed in my body. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much what they did or didn't do. It's the difference that I felt in my body. So I like what you said there. Like, it's what feels, you said, what feels right for you. Mm. And that's trusting you that what you feel is right. Wow. Which is hard to do when you're coming out of this kind of relationship, but it's possible. Yes. And that's why I think it takes time to recalibrate our sensors about that. One of the things that is so easy to do, especially in groups of other abuse survivors, is to get really, really freaking cynical about relationships or get really, really, really skeptical about love, romance, relationships. And that's a normal part of the process. I was just going to say, what do you what do you really feel about that? Because it is part of the process. Do you feel like there's a purpose that that serves for a time? Yep, I do. I think it is very self-preservatory in nature. And I think, so for those of us who have any bent toward denial or minimization, it cuts through that very quickly to, to have environments that are very quick to validate the problems of what we've lived through when we might be tempted to minimize or deny them. But yeah, so I think it's, I think it's, there's a very almost evolutionary 
purpose and it's not where most of us want to live. Like I remember, like I used to say, anyone with a penis can just stay way, 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 way far away from me. Just right here and we'll both be fine. Right. So I remember the day I traveled a lot for work at that time. I remember the day I was on an airplane sitting next to just a very normal guy. Like no, no Fabio, no Brad Pitt, no, nobody special, nobody exciting, nobody dramatic, just a very normal Joe. And for the first time, instead of like, you can't see me, but like moving way over, like putting as much space as possible, which I thought be like just to lean toward him and put my head on his shoulder. For the first time, that proximity felt appealing versus aversive. Yeah. And that was when I knew something inside of me was shifting. And those cues, and that was probably, I have, I've got a lot of issues. Being attuned to my body is not always my easiest cue. I'm more likely to pick up on behavioral patterns or emotional responses, that kind of thing, than bodily ones. But that's probably the closest I've ever gotten. But that was that was just such a clear moment of recognizing the before and the after. And I did not go register on a dating website the next day. It was months after that. It was what my dating or my divorce coaching instructor always called, are you ready to get ready to get ready? Yes. Yeah. To open your heart to new possibilities. And that's where I was in that moment. And it was very, very memorable. I love that so much. Amen to all of that. Getting ready to get ready to get ready. Yep. There's always processes. There's always steps towards. And as long as we are, I think, really the theme that's showing up is in this whole conversation is how important it is out of these kinds of relationships to start seeing yourself. To start Mm -hmm. noticing, paying attention, observing, having compassion, asking yourself questions. Mm -hmm. One of my closest colleagues, the day after she discovered her husband's secret sexual life, and they're still married, but she said, I woke up the next morning and I said to myself, from this moment forward, I will be proud of everything I do. Mm. She knew that her salvation, her way out, her redemption story was going to be about her own integrity. And that would require her to get to know herself and be really honest with herself and stop making excuses for herself and others, but to really get honest about what is the guiding principle for my life going to be and how am I going to live in congruence with that? So I think there's something to be said for it. I think there's a lot to be said for that. And as soon as you made that statement. I just tried that on in my body and I felt so much empowerment and strength. And what came up for me was if I really believed that, if I really said that I'm going to be proud of everything I do today, that for me eliminated the fear of getting it wrong. Yeah. And that shows up so much, right? When you feel like you got the relationship wrong, you feel like you did the relationship wrong. You feel like it all went wrong wrong, 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 and you don't want to get it wrong again. I love that so much that if you could wake up and say, I'm going to be proud of everything I do, that, that is such a growth mindset right there. Yes, it really is. And it empowers you to do something different the next day. No, like what are the things I believe in so much is course corrections, because I really believe we heal from trauma by making choices. Trauma happens when our choices are taken away. We heal from trauma by making choices. I told someone today, I don't care if it's chicken soup or beef soup or blue socks or red socks. If I make the choice, I'm going to wear red socks today. I consider that a healing 
act. That is an act in my effort to resolve my trauma, right? So when we make a decision, talk to this person, take this job, go on this date, make this financial commitment, sign up for this class, whatever. And somewhere along the way, we go, oh, <laughs> not, not what I thought it was or not getting me where I need to be. Or maybe my values have shifted or something has changed. What a beautifully empowered thing to say, okay, how can I make a different choice? We're not like undoing the choice that we made and therefore undoing the benefit that we got out of making the choice. We're saying, how can I make even another choice? Yes. And further that act of healing. You can tell I get a little bit passionate about this stuff. Oh my gosh. No, I'm right there with you. I'm like just tingly because yes, yes to the yes. This is beautiful. I freaking love this conversation. And okay, so as we wrap up, I would love to hear any additional thoughts that come to your mind as you work with women who are navigating this experience out of divorce from abuse? Okay. So when I was at the worst of my stuff, I was so shut down. I was functional on the outside, but inside I was just in a blur, right? And that lasted for longer than I like. A, a friend of mine who was had a unique glimpse into both my personal and my professional life said something to me one day that I'll never, she said two things. First thing she said was, what doesn't kill you will put you in a coma, but you will wake up. And when you wake up, I will be there. And I was just like, okay, that is so much better than the whole, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Right. And the second thing she said is, I know you feel down for the count, but I know you're not. And it just was like life and different to hear someone outside of myself. Cause at that point, like I could say affirmations to myself that they didn't feel very strong or confident to have someone else who was a divorce survivor herself looking at me and saying, she didn't even try to fake how not okay I was, but she acknowledged the fact that I was not going to stay there and that my life was not over and I would get myself back. And lo and behold, she was right. She was right. And look at the amazing work that you're doing with women. And I support any woman who helps empower other others like ourselves who are navigating this journey to growth and healing and empowerment and definitely look at you as a very empowered woman and mentor to me. So thank you for giving voice and sharing yours with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Amy. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thanks again for joining the conversation today. Might be one that you replay. We talked about and covered a lot such good information. And like I've mentioned before, if you are ready to dive deeper into your experience in that previous relationship around those abusive behaviors and communication in those eight different domains of the relationship so that you can start understanding more of what you experienced, what really was unhealthy to help you identify more of what healthy looks like then in the show notes, check out the Relationship Dynamic Assessment. This is a powerful and honestly, very quick way to get that reality check, but so, so valuable. As always, I wanna remind each of you that you are the chooser in your life and how you move forward and you can create the life that you want from within because you can. All right, everybody, I will see you soon. Take care.